Knock yourself out, kid. I heard this phrase many times growing up. Usually is from one of my dads or from one of the Boy Scout leaders in my troop. And I was surprised when I told someone here at our church about this phrase. And they evidently had never heard their dad say this to one of their brothers. Knock yourself out, kid, is shorthand for you're about to do something stupid, but I ain't going to stop you. As I was explaining this phrase, I thought of another analogy to bring this home. Knock yourself out, kid, is... Very is the dad version of the wife saying, fine. <laughs> In other words, you're about to do something stupid, but I ain't going to stop you. Now, the biggest difference between the dad and the wife is that the dad is going to laugh when his son is finished, when the husband is done, it may involve a lawyer. We're going to see that letting someone learn something the hard way has a long and storied history of success. And in fact, in a few minutes, we'll see that the knock yourself out kind of teaching began in the Garden of Eden. We're going to conclude today our preaching on the very first marriage. It started last Sunday with a promise. No acrimony. There's no high horse sitting. There's no posturing. There's no fighting when we talk about marriage this morning. I want to teach what God's Word says in this passage. And I don't want to do what is politically correct from either side of the aisle. In fact, I want to reaffirm what I said last week. I welcomed everyone here. You might be single. You might be LGBT. You might be divorced. You might be unhappily married. You are welcome here this morning as an equal because every single one of us stands equally in need of the cross. Last week, though, I was reminded by someone that I missed another group There are those here who are widowed or widowers, and I want to welcome you too. You are valued as a member of our church. So two weeks in a row, we are specifically talking about God's view of marriage. Please don't check out if you're married or not married right now. If for no other reason, I would like to invite you into this conversation because marriage is so contentious. And it is worthwhile knowing what the Bible teaches, whatever you decide to receive it or to reject it. God, who invented marriage, has something to say, and we all should know what that is. So today I need to move forward in expositing our text while fully aware that in this fallen world there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Just ask my wife. Or better, ask your wife. But we have to start somewhere, and so I want to begin where the Bible begins, right at the beginning. And as always, one plus one equals one. I'm going to begin reading it 
uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Last week, I made a big deal about what the image of God is and how in this passage, the most significant aspect of the image of God is the fact that we were created in community. Now, while there are many kinds of community, and certainly these various kinds of community reflect the image of God in us, it is the marriage kind of community. It is the one plus one equals one kind of community that images God in a very particular way. And that is God is in community, and He wants to be in community with us. God wants to be with us. And as we live as one flesh with our spouse, we display that for all the world to see. So let's open our hearts and minds to God's word, and we will learn that one plus one equals one. Let's recap quickly at verse 18 that we spent a lot of time with last week. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And because this is so central, and because it is so often misunderstood, I want to remind you that last week we spent several minutes talking about the word helper. And we emphasized last time that this word helper is a term of honor. We looked at several examples throughout the Old Testament, and we saw that An army is referred to as a helper. The king, a general, even the high priest were all considered helpers in the Old Testament. But if you take all those examples and add them all together, they don't even come close to the number of times that God himself is called our helper using this exact same term. And so we see that the wife as the helper emphasizes the reality of the team aspect. The man and the woman are made to create, or excuse me, to accomplish their God-given task of imaging him in the community way. And even though it is not yet explicit here, this helper terminology raises the expectation that there is in fact a covenant relationship that the rest of the Bible makes explicit. For example, in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Self-consciously, Malachi looks back to this verse in our passage. She is your companion. She is your helper. He knows what he's doing when he says this. And then he adds, she is your wife by covenant. Now last week, we needed to spend a bunch of time understanding the image of God in mankind and what it looks like for you and I to show God off, so to speak. But this week, we need to understand covenant better and what it means for how we live, how we treat our spouse, and why on earth is God so concerned about this particular issue? Now, I am going to way oversimplify this. But a covenant is a special relationship between people that is intentionally overseen and taken part in by God himself. God takes part in the covenant and God oversees what is going on. And our passage today clearly shows this covenant relationship, even though it is not yet called a covenant in this text. Don't miss this. If you've already been checked out of this sermon, I want you to check back in just for a moment. God takes marriage seriously. Marriage is very important to God. Marriage is our way, one of, we talked about last week, one of the ways we display God to the world. And so he is very concerned that we are listening to him as we go about living our marriage. We'll emphasize this again in a moment. But there's one more thing to remember that we covered last week in verse 18. Moses, in verse 18, underscores the significance of, not, of the not-goodness of Adam being alone. In fact, when you read, it is not good for the man should be alone, it should be a neon sign. Moses couldn't use italics, he didn't use a, a sharpie highlighter, but he wanted you to catch, wait, Something is wrong here. I need to go back and reread chapter 1. And so you do. Remember in chapter 1, we saw that after the man and woman were created, God said, it is very good. So what happened? What, what is the problem that we need to catch, that we need to pay attention to? Well, it's right here, and we're going to get to what that problem is that caused the not goodness, and what God did about it. We begin in verse 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him or suitable to him. Now here we get to the knock yourself out kid part of the passage. We'll see that Adam's work, however, was not stupid and it was certainly not without value. 
But the work Adam did did not accomplish what he thought it would. He thought doing this work would find him a helper. Instead, what this work did was to show Adam that he needed God to work. That we need God to work in us and through us and for us. What Adam's knock-yourself-out-kid work did was to show him all is not well in Eden. Adam's labor naming the animals was not in vain. But Adam's work also pointed out one of the most important truths you and I need to learn on this side of eternity. And that is work apart from the Lord is futile. Which of course is famously taught elsewhere in Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2. Solomon says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now listen. If you don't work on your house, it won't be built. If you don't guard your city, it will be open to attack. If you don't get up early in the morning and go earn a buck, your family is going to suffer. So will your, if you're married, if you don't work to learn to love your wife or your husband, you will suffer. Your family will suffer. Your church will suffer. Your community, your nation will suffer. Now fortunately, you can work because God works. And because God works, you and I must work. God is active. That's a good thing. And if your marriage is to accomplish its intended end, that is to display to your neighbors the community aspect of God in us, if your marriage is to accomplish its intended end, then you need God working in you and through you and for you. And He does that as you love your spouse. As you take time to know your spouse. As you take time and effort to understand. It's not 50-50, people. That's a lie. It's 100-100 or it's nothing. More important than the American dream. More important than the perfect Hollywood coiffed hair. More important than fun, because none of those things are the purpose of your marriage. More important than any of these things, your purpose in life and marriage is to show the world that Jesus is worth more to you than anything and everything. Even those times when you'd rather be sitting back on the couch watching TV, when what you need to be doing is serving your wife. Adam 
needed to learn an important lesson, the only way that was possible for him to learn it. He needed to learn that he, in fact, is a community-oriented creature. And he needed to learn that only through God would he find the community that he needed. Adam, like Greg Burtnett, needs God to act for us so that we can fulfill what it means for us, in this case, to be married. Now, fortunately, God is a good and gracious God who loves us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we see in this passage that God worked for Adam. Hmm. I wonder if that means he might work for us too. I wonder if we ask him if he would work for our marriage. You might try that sometime. What do we see? Verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now I want you to notice something. The deep sleep that God caused Abraham, or excuse me, Adam to have is very important. Adam did absolutely nothing except sleep. Now, several years ago, some of you remember that I found myself lying in the middle of Highway 166. I was traveling eastbound on my bicycle, and a car decided to pull out in front of me, and I met the asphalt at 27 miles an hour. When I got to the hospital, the doctor asked me if I had experienced any unconsciousness since the accident. I said no. The EMT next to me told her, oh, yes, he did. To which I replied, I don't remember that. (laughs) You see, for however long that was, I was unconscious. I was completely helpless. I had zero control over anything around me. I could do nothing. Exactly like Adam. He was asleep. He was helpless. But Adam's sleep, Adam's unconsciousness was no accident. It was meant to teach Adam and us something important. God was and God is in charge. God created marriage. Marriage is his idea. God knew what needed to be done, and God did it. It follows, then, that when it comes to marriage, we should listen to the author of marriage. It follows, then, that we should do it like he says. Now, was this the first time that Adam had ever slept? I don't know. But I know what the first thing he said was after he opened his eyes. Whoa, man! It says so right there. So at this point, I want to reaffirm the big idea from last week. One plus one equals one. 
And I stand by the old math here. But it is not the whole story. We need to be careful to distinguish something. It is Christian marriage alone. It is the covenanting together under God that displays God to the world as we discussed last week. It is a biblical understanding of marriage that is the fullest of ex expression of one plus one equaling one. In other words, the new old math needs to be one man plus one woman plus God equals one flesh. Now, for simplicity's sake, and because I like how it rolls off my tongue, I will keep the one plus one equals one. But we need to understand, we need to capture the essence of what Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10. Jesus teaches the new old math in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What therefore God has joined together. Jesus affirms that the joining together of Adam and Eve was not the only marriage that he arranged and endorsed. God considers himself a part of marriage. God considers himself a part of your marriage. Especially, he shows himself to be a part of your marriage when you seek to honor him. Because one man plus one woman with one God makes one flesh. One plus one equals one. As I've already said, God sees marriage as a covenant. Marriage is a special promise that invokes God's direct involvement between two people. And so... When you sin against your wife, you sin against God. Now, I don't mind saying, but that's a bad place to be. God takes seriously the man and the woman becoming one flesh because that one fleshness is what displays God to the watching world. Exactly as he says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Together, the man and his wife are the man, the human being that he says here, that Moses mentions, as being in God's image. Now, I really wish I had one more week to preach because my next sermon would be on singleness, and I don't want to misrepresent God. As I said last week, I tried to emphasize single people, for whatever reason you are single, you also image forth God in profound and important ways. Please don't take what I'm saying here as denigrating singleness in any way. I just don't have the time 
to get to every aspect. But we see that this imaging of God in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 has a special sense. In a special sense, it displays the image of God as a community. And it is not the whole story. There's yet more. Adam knew when he woke up the glory. And I don't use that word lightly. The glory of his helper God made fit for him. The woman was exactly what Adam needed in order to display God, to fill the earth, and to steward creation about him. And you know what? Adam was a little bit excited. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Whoa! Man! This is covenantal language. This is God-endorsed promise language. This is what it looks like for you and God and your spouse to fit together as one flesh. The bone and flesh Adam is excited about is first and foremost about unity. The equality. The humanity that makes one man and one woman complementary to each other. It also reminds us that we should be excited like Adam when we see our spouse. If you're not, train yourself to be. Pray about it. Then we come to the words that Moses utters that had been a part of wedding ceremonies for millennia. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Finally, we get to the covenantal formula that the entire Bible uses. So significant is verse 24 that when Jesus mentions the solid, continuing nature of the marriage covenant and the requirement for Christians to remain faithful to it, the disciples around him are like, whoa, dude, it is better not to get married. And Jesus did not tell them that they were wrong. Because one plus one equals one. So let's wrap this part of it up. Last week we emphasized the one fleshness of biblical marriage and how it displays for all to see that God exists in three persons but one God. And this week we tried to emphasize the covenantal aspect of the man and woman coming together as one flesh because that is what we learn in this passage. The promise aspect that is sanctioned is overseed and in fact is enforced by God himself is no less a part of this image of God within humanity. And theology as such is never for merely theology alone. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to know Him ourselves. That is true. But the point of theology is that we would live changed lives. And so Moses ends this passage with as 
practical as gas in your vehicle instruction. What we find in verse 25 is fuel for your heart. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now certainly, this verse refers to physical intimacy. And I said last week that even though physical intimacy is not the most important aspect of the one flesh teaching, it certainly is a part of it. There is no doubt that the physical intimacy part of marriage is significant. And listen, at least I for one say amen. Amen. Fortunately, however, Moses' culture, the, the physicality of love was not as absurdly emphasized as it is in our own culture. We sometimes forget, because it is paraded in front of us every single place we look, that not every culture has worshipped sexuality. In fact, the most important word in this verse is not naked. The most important word in this verse is not ashamed. I have a question. Are you able to stand naked in front of your spouse and not be ashamed? You should be. I wonder how many of us here are. After 21 years of pastoral counseling, the number is way too small. Are you able to stand in front of your spouse naked physically, emotionally, mentally? You should be. Now, when I say that you should be able to stand in front of your spouse and not be ashamed, I do not mean that it is at this moment always safe to do so. It should be safe. But if you want to find safety, if you want to find not ashamedness standing naked in front of your spouse, you will find that it will take time and effort on both of your parts to make it so. It will take humility. That's painful. It will take a deepening of your relationship with your Father in heaven. That's humbling. It will take time and effort and even treasure to deepen your relationship with your spouse. It will take grace. It will take grace to stand unashamed before your spouse. Grace is God's power to accomplish kingdom purposes in your life. For example, like standing naked and unashamed. It will take faith. It will take trusting in God's promises for you in Christ. It will take love. Because love is the grace of God working itself through faith so that you are willing and able to make sacrifices for your beloved. Instead of just sitting back on the couch watching the game. In short, it will take God working in you and through you and for you so that you can live one plus one equals one. And oh, my friends, this is where we find the cross. Here is the cross. You have sinned against your spouse often enough. 
Your spouse has sinned against you often enough that if you do not go individually to the cross, and if you do not go as a couple to the cross, and stand together naked before the cross as forgiven sinners, you will never be able to stand unashamed. You will never be able to exemplify one fleshness. And this is the glory of the cross. All you have to do is come. That's all you got to do. Show up. How do you show up? Lord Jesus. I can't do this. I need you to help me. I need you to help my spouse. Help us both. To stand first and foremost naked before you and be unashamed. So that we can do the same together and live that one plus one equals one. You will not find this grace alone. You must get into a community where you can find this kind of trust and power and grace and courage in order to trust and to love. You will not find it in our culture. So... We're going to give an opportunity here at Grace. Starting in August, we will begin a brief four-week class where we can learn some key truths together in an atmosphere where we can be real and not polemic, where we can be there not trying to fight each other, but to fight the sin in our own hearts. Fight for what we value, our marriage. So if you're married, sign up in the hallway and learn what we're all about. Now, I told you last week, we're going to meet starting in August at the 1030 hour in the Ed Building Room 704, and we're going to do that. But I've also found out we have way too many people signed up for that. So we're going to get back to you, I promise, real quick with more information about how we're going to do that. We'll probably have to do it at different times. It will happen, and we will rejoice. But then on Sunday, September 29th, we're going to have a vow renewal ceremony for those who want to be a part of it and have taken part in our covenant-keeping group. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun and barbecue. It's going to be flowers and barbecue. It's going to be gospel and barbecue. We're going to give you more information and barbecue. But you need to sign up, you need to be in our class, and you need to have an RSVP in order to do it. So right on the other side of that wall in our hallway, there will be people to sign you up. Get in there, and we will get back to you with more information. For the rest of us, last week, I remember, you remember I gave you four affirmations based upon this text. We're not fighting, we're just saying what God's Word says. We want to remember to celebrate what we are for, what we value. And certainly, we don't value fighting the culture. Instead, we want to fight the culture that is in our hearts. So let me repeat what we said last week. Marriage and singleness are healthy expressions of full humanity, and both are a gift of God to His people. Marriage is 
one man and one woman covenanting to become one flesh. Marriage is in a special sense an expression of the image of God. And last week we went to Ephesians 5 and we saw that marriage is in a special sense an image of God's relationship to his people as a whole. And we sang about that earlier this morning. But what about affirmations specific to today's sermon? Start with celebrate. If you are unmarried in whatever flavor, celebrate the marriages of those you hold dear. Remind us to celebrate each other, to celebrate God who brought us together, and remind us to celebrate singleness. Because we need to remember that it is about us. We are the body of Christ, and we display the glory of God. And of course... Speaking of which, we can all celebrate this morning Dave and Gloria Flam, who have been married today 63 years. Praise Jesus. But what about today? Rejoice in your spouse. Live committed to your spouse. Grow in intimacy with your spouse. And above all, celebrate Marriage, the one plus one equals one kind of relationship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us here. And thank you that you superintended to bring us to communion this morning. Because communion celebrates what you did to bring us together. God, I pray that this morning, as we celebrate at your table, we will celebrate doing so because you have made us one. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing.